Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. This is Jason Shattuck back again with another episode of Chasing Frets, and I'm here once again with my good buddy Joe Gore. Hey, it's really exciting to be here, Jason, and I'm so stoked about our new uh, podcast venture with Premier Guitar. This is going to be really cool. And uh, as you heard on Monday, the episode with Blake, he's a, he could be one of the most interesting guitar players in the world, and I, I think he's definitely up there. And today we're going to talk about kind of the other side of his musical personality as him as a producer. And this one kind of uh, goes deep as to kind of his ethos as a producer and, and how he kind of, this is one line, Joe, you threw out when we were talking about him as a guest is how he plays guitar with a producer's ear. And what were some of the things you mentioned, you heard in his playing that made you think of that idea? Well, um, as I mentioned in the first episode, you know, I've, I've known Blake since he was 19 and from the get go, he just played with the weight and maturity of a, of a much older, much more experienced musician, you know, leaving aside anything he can do technically, which is amazing. It's just, he's thinking music, not necessarily guitar. And, um, he brings that same sensibility to the records he produces too. They're very, um, um, his Alabama shakes record for which he was nominated for producer of the year, you know, was a huge hit, but it's not terribly conventional. It's, you know, very original sound palette doesn't sound like quite anything else and uh the uh same with all the other production work that he's done so uh he brings the same profundity and uh lack of trying to show off or prove anything to his productions as he does to his uh guitar work so this one this one will be a bit of a longer episode we go pretty deep on, on this one so uh Please uh, leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can hit us up at chasingfrets at premierguitar.com if you want to shout out any questions or comments. And uh, we hope you enjoy this episode, and we'll see you later this week. But Blake, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here. So today we are going to... So before, uh, when Joe and I were kind of scheming of what we could talk to Blake Mills about... One of the lines that Joe was kind of just kind of I think fell out, and I said, "That's it. That's what we got to talk about is playing guitar with a producer's ear." Because one of the things you're known for almost as much, if not more, than your guitar playing is your is your production. So first, I wanted to ask you, when did you know? As we talked in the previous episode, kind of we went over your kind of early years, and you know, you were, it was really important to you to be able to join a rock band and travel the country, but when did the idea of production as an occupation and as something you might 
want to do seriously kind of enter your enter your career and your thoughts? I think there was a logical place um, to go after no longer being in a band, uh, having done a couple years of session work. Um, well, let me let me backtrack for a second because when you're when you're in a band, you you are and you're making a record, you're in what we were in, like, this was like 2007, we were making our, our, our first full length. Um, are you referring to, are you referring to Simon Dawes? Yeah, this is a band called Simon Dawes. And, you know, half of these guys are people that I, I grew up with in high school. And the, the fact is like, you're, 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 embarking on a process after having listened to records your entire life and fantasized about the way that those records were made and why they sound the way that they sound. And so you're applying this, um, some, some of it's based on reading and some of it's just based on uh, assumption and you're applying all of that, like knowledge and, you know, and, 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 and fake news to the process. And that's, you're, 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 you're producing, you know, the artist is always imparting some aspect of themselves in, onto the sound of the record. Um, a lot of people outside of record making and even some on the inside associate production just with the sound of a, of a record, you know, the style of it. And, and that's not always where the, the, the hand of production is, is really um, at play. Can you explain? For example, you could have, let's say you have a solo artist who, who comes in to a record uh, making process and they've signed on to work with a producer because they like the way that the records that that person has produced in the past sound and the style and, and the, the quality of those records. So let's say that the nature of this artist is such that they write songs on guitar um, and they've got lyrics and melody and they write them by themselves and they come in and they go, this is how it goes. I don't really know how to treat this song, how to, you know, uh, what the drums should do, what the bass should do. So a lot of that ends up falling on the producer and, and musicians that the producers worked with. And that record can result in sounding a lot like records that that producer has made before, because he's, presumably is working with musicians that have played on other people's records. And there's sort of a, uh, uh, there's a history to that whole process, which is like, I've selected you because I like the way these other records sound and I identify with those records. But the other way it can go is that somebody comes in, let's say you're working with a band, all of a sudden the nature of how these songs are, are performed and, uh, and articulated is somewhat predetermined. The style of, of the way these songs are going to sound, it, it emanates from the sound of this band that already exists. You're not putting a band together of studio musicians. This is a, you know, it's a whole other entity. So the role of a producer in that project is already completely different than it was on the last record they worked on where it was just with one musician, you know? And, and so the, 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 the rules change every time the, 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 the job, description changes with every single record. Uh, and, um, and I think that there's something very natural about that coming from a position of being a studio musician, 
because the style of music, the temperament of the artist, uh, your band, um, everything changes each time as well for the studio musician. And they have to rely on their own sensibilities. They have to rely on their musical sensibilities. Um, they have to rely on their ability to communicate and interpret things from other people and try to be agreeable uh, in, in those environments with those other people. Those two things were anathema to being in a band as a teenager, meaning that when you're in a band, especially if you're a co-writer, uh, you're in a band, you're essentially, you're protecting your own artistic personality and your, your own creative decisions from the personality and decisions of the other members in the band so as to get your 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 creativity across mm -hmm. you know what i mean yeah so it's it's the opposite of being uh hired for something how so well if you're in a band and you're 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 kind of like you're staking your flag next to these three other flags and you're not trying to take their flags down, but you're making sure that hopefully everybody at the end of this thing gets a chance to see your flag. You know what I mean? And hear your flag and hear your, hear your, your mark that you're leaving on, on, on this music. This is the band that you're in. And especially if you're not the lead singer, you get, you get real protective over, you know, how you think it should go. Uh, you start suggesting things that the bass line could do. I'm like, well, what if the drums, this is when you're recording, right? Or rehearsing, what if the drums do this? And well, what if the drums do that? Oh, that doesn't sound very good. Let's try the, and, and I, 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 I can't imagine how annoying it would have been to be in a band with me at that age. <laughs> uh, because you're micromanaging and you're producing and, and ultimately uh, I think that's what drove a wedge between me and my friends in that band was, is, is that I had all of these things that I wanted to try and wanted to hear uh, when we were in the studio. And, and, uh, but it was uncomfortable because uh, I was taking up so much air in the room but then when you're the producer on a project, as opposed to being just a band member or a, a guitar player, I mean, I don't mean to say just, but, but when you're in a producerial role on a project, it's both easier to not step in at every turn with the idea you have in your head that you want to hear or what the drums could do, what the bass could do. It's easier to just sit back and see what happens. Um, and at the same time, when you do make a suggestion, because you're not in the band, it's, it, it's heard by everybody in the room in a completely different way. Hmm. It's, it's a, a different role. Um, and I, I had the experience, Experience from being a session player of being able to communicate directly with producers about certain ideas that I had that felt like maybe if I were to just voice them, it might be overstepping a little bit. Like if something sounded a little off to me about what we were doing as a band and I wanted us to maybe try one more take and see if we beat the thing that everybody was already happy with. If we just tweak this one little thing, you know who to go to 
in the room. You go to the producer. It's like this intermediary, you know, it's the couple's therapist. <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so all those things really drew me to the, that role, you know, all, all that, those aspects of it. Do you just enjoy being in control? You're not always in control. You know, I mean, in, in fact, it's it's just as much a comfortability with being in control, uh, with taking control when you need to, like when, when the thing is not being steered. You're, the artist is in control. But sometimes in order for the artist to be the artist, they can't be dealing, they can't spend psychic energy on things like, well, uh, who who are we going to get to tune the piano? When should we tune the piano if we're going to cut? The, when should we record the piano song if we're here for a week? You know, and, and and the studio rate is such and such. Do we have it in the budget to pay for the piano tuner? Uh, you know, when wh- oh, is everybody hungry? Should we order food? These are all things that that are n- non-creative decisions that need to be made over the course of a day or or or, or a record. And it's control. And uh, those are things that I just don't think help a record to have fall on the shoulders of, of, of an artist. And it's, it's part of production, making sure the thing gets made. Is it possible to ask how that sensibility that you've described really well uh, affects some of your choices as a guitarist? And I ask because uh, you had a very atypical career path. A, because you were really good, and B, because of proximity and access to a lot of talented people, and you got a leg up in recording and producing and seeing how studio works at a very, very young age. It's more typical for most of us to play for many, many years and then maybe get a chance to go in and record for the first time. And when you have a guitarist with some degree of technical skill, but no degree of any experience recording or making records. Um, obviously, you can come in with a lot of wrong-headed ideas and energy. Um, just from your from your experienced producer's perspective, is there any you know any thoughts you might share with a guitarist who's more more in that situation? Lots of experience playing, maybe not very much recording and producing. Yeah, the thing that I think translates most directly from being in a position of playing guitar in an ensemble to production would be uh as 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 an ensemble player listening to what is there and what's not there what's already happening what somebody else is doing and all the while thinking now is what I'm about to do going to compound and, and like combine with all these things and make it worse or make it better. Like, is there anything I can do that would, that would enhance what else is going on here? Uh, I'm, I had this thought the other day when I was doing a, a solo, like live stream solo thing, you know, now we're, we're, we're in shelter in place. We, we, we very quickly as a, as a musical society have adapted to 
solo performing in front of an iPhone camera and, and, and broadcasting it to the world. And, and it's terrifying and it's very different from live performance. And it's very different uh, from anything I'm used to in terms of um, playing for an audience. Part well, how's it? Why, why is it different from a television date or, um, well, you know, going to the festival and opening for an audience 10 times what you're used to? For me, the biggest difference is you're completely cut off from the reception, like where, what environment people are receiving the sound in. I mean, it's one thing to have a, 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 a barrier between the live sound coming through a PA to the audience. And then you're on stage and you got your monitor mix and there's, there's, there's still a sense of what's going on out there. There's still a sense of, of the environment in which you're playing. Um, and there's an audience and you can, you can avert your, your attention or your gaze over here and then over here and then over here. And it's, there, there's, there's an organism that you're interacting with whether you're choosing to or not, even if you just had your head down the entire time, you're still interacting in a room with, with sound and the other people in that room and their presence. When you're at home, uh, like it's such a vacuum. It's such a vacuum. The only interaction you have is the comments which are like delayed, you know, and it's the last thing you want to be re reading or, or looking at when you're performing. It's like, I was going to say, do you, for, for those oh. venturing into uh, quarantine podcasting, better to read the comments or better to, oh, better to, better to skip your I mean, Never ever read the comments <laughs> for one. Yeah. But if you do uh, and you're trying to play at the same time, it's, it's like an immediate way to, to put to turn your brain, set it to the to the to the, the noodling setting, you know, where you're just mindlessly, you're no longer in in any sort of zone, you know. It's just like you just can't. Uh, but but going back to um, going back to like solo performing in general, maybe even with an audience in place, you you have a responsibility to introduce something. To the room it's like starting a conversation it's a, it, to me that idea is is really uh makes me very anxious the idea of responding to somebody else's thought whether it be conversational or musical is is really easy to wrap my head around because i'll either have something to add to it uh or a response or i won't and i and i'm perfectly comfortable with not having a response and not participating in a conversation, you know, and just listening or asking a question of somebody, you know, I mean, like those are all, that's a fine place to be. So translate that musically, right? So you, you, you're, you're playing in a band and you're listening to what people are doing and you're not necessarily sure what you could be doing that would add and not step on somebody else's toes, like not, playing is 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 a decision it has a sound and and everybody else who's listening uh in the audience or listening to that record is is digesting this thing with your the decision of, of not playing you know what i mean and that's faith and 
there's so many times I li- I've listened back and wish that I had chosen not to play, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the thing that I was doing. Uh, there's a sound to playing when you're trying to find the thing that works. You know what I mean? That kind of like searching sound where uh, it sort of stutters, you know, and you, you, you like take a step over here and, you know, oh, no, that's not right. And you kind of come back and you retreat or there's, there's something wonderful about listening to certain people try to find the thing to play, you know, and get there. And then you realize that what they land on is, is, is the result of a thought process. I mean, that's, there's a whole conversation happening when you're listening to a record and it could, you're, you're commuting with somebody who could have been dead for 150 years. You know, that's fascinating. It's, it's, uh, that's, uh, um, one of the magical things about, about listening to music and, and playing it at the same time. Uh, so that, that is very similar to production where you're trying to play guitar like a producer. You're listening as a producer to, you might be listening to a, a song uh, that somebody is playing and you're, you're imagining what the drums and bass could be doing and you're imagining what the guitar would be doing and then therefore what the drums and bass be doing in response to that uh, or you're listening to the studio musicians or the band uh, on the recording date playing and thinking uh, are all the pieces of the puzzle here do we even need anything else do we do we need a, another another part in there is there is there a chunk of the uh, uh, a chunk of the, the kind of the, the, the shape of this thing missing. And um, can that somehow be played on guitar? You know, that's, that's where my head goes. It's like, can I, can I get, there's a percussive part missing, but can I just maybe get away with doing it on guitar somehow without it sounding like there's another guitar in there. Last week we, we talked about uh, um, the Allman Brothers band a lot. Cause we were talking about slide and there's a, 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 a great example of well in in the allman brothers and in in some southern rock bands in the 70s it's like you've got four guitars three guitars sometimes you know in these ensembles and and it's just piling on the pain (laughs) sometimes you know and and I, i grew up in a lot of uh uh musical settings where where we were just playing Southern rock. We were playing our version of, of that music, uh, and jamming. And, um, and, uh, I never wanted to, I never wanted to like, I never wanted to be making music that was like embarrassing to be playing, you know what I mean? Or the idea that somebody's listening to it going like, Oh, these guys are just, you know, it's a circle jerk, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and I was also around guitar players who I thought were incredible. You know, I, Dwayne Betts, I looked up to, he was one of my favorite guitar players, you know? And, and so uh, there was this kind of like trading of solos going around all the time that you do when you're jamming. It's like, okay, now you, now it's your turn. Oh, now it's my turn. Now, now okay, now it's his turn. And, uh, and I, I had just as much fun listening to, the other people playing as, as I did um, stepping up and, and, and taking a solo. 
And I never wanted to be stepping on or distract somebody with what I was doing when it was time for them to be, you know, doing their thing. Like I, I, I was listening. I would forget to play sometimes. It's because you're listening. And there's probably a reason for that. Turning back to something you said a couple minutes ago in passing, you talked about, we were joking about reading the comments when you're doing a, doing a, a live uh, uh, webcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you said about, well, that just makes you, it takes you out of the moment and you just start, you know, noodling. Um, as two longtime guitar magazine editors who listen to a lot of guitar players and a lot of guitar music, that revelation never comes for many, many players. Um, you know, you you just mentioned it as if it were second nature. But, uh, you know, for so many, they're just locked in the world of what they can display and, and what they can do and um, uh, get caught in a mental trap of listening to themselves, judging, criticizing feeling proud, whatever, but it's not a genuine connection to the music that's being created around you. Mm. And uh, I think that was one thing that impressed me most about you as a teenage player is you had just gotten over that crap. It just, it wasn't even a topic. It's just, you know, you would play something true and profound. And man, such a huge percentage of guitarists never even glimpse that revelation. Well, guitar is an embarrassing instrument. Look at our look at our history. It's a it's a relatively young instrument, and like, look look at our heroes, and and like, compare that to compare that to the 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 heroes of of piano or violin or sitar and how how deep that lineage goes singers you know i mean it's communion with a spiritual world that may or may not exist it's it's um it you know with with drums even it's communicating a means of communication through oppression, you know, and, and outlawing singing and, and uh, it, it's just, it's so deep culturally what music means and has meant to people. And in my twenties, I think I looked at this thing that felt like my instrument or like what, you know, what I grew up with and, and the guys that, uh, that you associate with the instrument and it's like big hair, spandex, makeup and volume. And like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it's sort of embarrassing. It's like, it's, you know, it's a, there, there are, there are a lot of um, asshole personalities that seem to uh, define guitar culture. And uh, I just don't, I don't, I don't connect with that. I'm like kind of repulsed by it, you know? Um, And, and that's, that's like half of, half of, half of it. The other half is, and I'd be curious to know what you guys think about this, but like, 
do people do musicians feel the need to cram everything that they feel like they are capable of doing um and i myself included in this it's just that i i think i think the things that i'm trying to cram in there are are not the same are not are not not as as um familiar right or like there are things that all come across and be like oh i gotta remember to do that that's really cool that's really interesting or really out outside the box but i mean it's this i, I do the same thing that everybody else is doing which is like i, I want to display what i feel like i can do and 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 what i what i want to communicate but do do you think musicians feel the need to cram that in at every opportunity because we assume that audiences are more impatient now or just impatient in general that like if i don't throw this in there then people will never know that i can do it and i won't get another chance to do it because they'll they'll pass me by like they're in competition with somebody else some other like imaginary musician that they're they're in competition with for their their job you know for their gig i think i at an early age somebody might have told me maybe it didn't have anything to do with music maybe maybe i read it somewhere but like that idea that that like nobody in the world is is as good at being you as as you are naturally you know and um and I thought that was a really interesting thing, musically speaking, because we as musicians are always, we spend a lot of time thinking about what other musicians would do in our position, you know? And I, and I think that's a human thing. I mean, I bet you, you know, that's like, that's, that's a big part of the thought process and problem solving. Um, what would somebody else do here? Right. And, that probably goes hand in hand with some of my favorite things I've ever been a part of have, have resulted in feeling like they were bigger than me, bigger than the, the people, you know, bigger than the sum was greater than the parts. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so it's, it's a, it's, it's an approach. It's, it's like an ethos that I think a lot of musicians I like to work with and, and, um, be around. Uh, I think we, we, we all, we all do that. We all, uh, that's part of the scientific method. Um, yes, but, but you, you cop to, um, sometimes being victim of that cram everything, you know, into where it ought not be crammed. <laughs> but I, as I would offer as a contradictory evidence, your new album, mutable set where you have command of a vast range of styles and a vast range of sounds, but you restricted yourself to a fairly narrow slice of sound world for that record, and as a result, created something that has you know great unity. It it's its own sound world, unlike any other record. And you know, for me, that's one of the key definitions of what makes a great record. So I would I would beg to differ. I would say you're actually pretty darn good at. Um, not not bringing too much to the party every time. But that thing we were talking about a minute ago about the sound of not playing, um, that that the 
the absence of another part is not necessarily less information that uh, it's there because there's something else going on that the addition of another part uh, would do a disservice to, you know, um, for, for this record, for Mutable Set, uh, the process that made it different than the other records, solo records of mine that I, I've, I've done was that I, I um, one of the things that was different is that we, I started this one on tape and, and uh, on analog tape. And I feel like analog tape compresses in such a way where uh, the more you add to it, uh, the worse things start to sound. Like if they sounded really good to begin with, if you got a really good big sound on a vocal or a guitar or a piano uh, with a lot of air around it and it's, it's close and it's got a lot of information, there is, there's less bandwidth to play with, I think, on, on tape to where you can keep adding other big sounds and make, and that guitar still sounds as good as it did. I mean, even of like, a, if you can think of your favorite guitar sounds on, on your favorite records and they, that you hear them and they come in and then the vocal comes in and well, I guess what I'm saying is go back to those records and pay attention to what happens to the guitar sound when the vocal comes in. Yeah, like the, the, the addition of something else that deserves attention uh, takes away from the other thing that, that already, you know, that, 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 that had all that room to play with. So like, uh, in other words, on this record, I spent more time trying to get something out of the, the, the performance of uh, the, the, the foundation, the, the guitar and the vocal or piano and vocal. And, uh, and then once I got a performance that I was happy with, the things that I was happy with about it were, were, were a collection of moments, you know, and, and any, any uh, other idea or any other little thing that you know, I'm hearing or somebody else is hearing, um, it's this process of guess and check where you, you put it on and you listen back and it could be a great part. It could be uh, incredibly played. It could be an incredible sound, but you now have this knowledge of what was there before. And if something's being covered up and if it's worth, uh, uh, if it's worth, if it's worth it to keep the new part, to keep the overdub. Um, that's, that's a, I think that process is what resulted in large part to how, uh, sparse the, the record sounds. Um, but Joe, this is still a form of cramming everything, you know, into a, you know, it's decision-making. It's not a, it was not a, um, you know, that's great. Just as it is, let's move on. It's, I guess you're saying it, it's informed by everything you know, yeah. and the whole pool of what you know informs the decisions you make when creating it. But 
that uh, wealth of knowledge need not be on display every single time your finger hits a string. But I'm saying it is on display. I'm saying it's not, man. No, it's a very it minimal check, record. No, check it out. Like it. Okay. The 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 to say that the wealth of knowledge is not on display would negate the fact that the record sounding the way that it does is a re- is a direct result of the things learned from hearing records that that don't sound like that. Right. Yeah, you're right. I just think I've, I just have so much animus. I, but I want to give, I want to give more, if I can, I want to give more people that confidence to know that like th- that sound, th- th- you know, the, the thing that we associate with, with holding, uh, is powerful not to everybody a lot of people will hear my record and a lot of people will hear other musicians who are are reserved and 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 probably think well what's the big deal and you have to be willing to be totally okay mm-hmm. with that uh, but that in truth um there's a lot of power to the things that we're talking about uh because if somebody is receptive to it it communicates something that nothing else can. Nothing else played can, can, um, you know, the great actors of all time are the ones who, who say something with a, a gesture. And, and that's something I think everybody understands immediately. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, also, <laughs> I, I apologize for arguing with the artist. <laughs> no, I, it's the, well, you're not wrong. It's just, I, I hope that, that, um, I hope that the definition of of like what is impressive, especially in the guitar world, but but you know culturally, I hope that we can continue to have conversations as musicians who are aware of the power of restraint. You know, all all of us here. Like, I hope we can have conversations that help um, articulate things that I think a lot of people are feeling, but maybe don't have the confidence always to. Uh, to entertain because they think like, I don't know that people are going to get it. I don't, I don't know if this is um, uh, too basic. I don't know if I should. Well, I think, I think we should explain for, for, for listeners who haven't had the chance to check out Blake's new album, Mutable Set, uh, just a few words about what it is and isn't. It's a songwriter, singer songwriter album and, and Blake's songwriting or co-songwriting, I guess you work yeah. with the lyricist, um, you know, is very much on display. But man, is it an unconventional palette. Um, uh, there's uh, a lot of guitar, a lot of keyboards. There's a great deal of ambiguity about who's playing what a lot of the time. Uh, there's only uh, snippets of bass and drums, though the ones that are there are very dramatic. Um, there's one song where it's as if the drums are threatening to come in, but really never play more than a tap or two. Um, there's a lot of very watery, sustained, really good reverbs, sort of sounds. Really good reverbs. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know some of those. I don't know whether they're keyboards or your or your guitars, but and then a lot, a lot of kind of watery. Reminds me of Van Dyke Parks, kind of watery diatonic dissonance, mm-hmm. where um, kind of just a lot of interesting white key uh, dissonance, and it's really it's it's own sound world and the, and the, the principal guitar voice is is a very a, a rather small humble you know acoustic guitar sound 
basically, I mean, it's just the farthest thing you could imagine from a guitar stud album. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've, um, I've always like wondered what people, why people still expect <laughs> like every record, every, every record I've ever put out with songs that I've written has had that same, like, like, what's the surprising lack of guitar? Like, you know, but, um, but like, what's the precedent, you know, it's the, who, I, I don't even know if on other people's records I've ever played guitar in such a way that, that um, reminds me of like, that's just as overt. I guess, I, I guess there's gotta be, you know, examples there, but like. Well, I mean, I know you can, when I, you know, when I met you, when, when you were still 19, we were, we were goofing around with the, you know, the Steve Vai solo from Crossroads. You uh-huh. know? And yeah. I mean, you, you so, do, you do know all that stuff. I do, but I, don't you know, go there. So, I haven't done it in so long that I don't know if I can still do it. I mean, I like to think that, that like, you know, oh, but if I ever need it, you know, in an emergency, I could, I could pull it out, but I probably can't what? anymore. I, I, I would long. love to. A quick interpretation of envisioning an emergency situation where you need to pull out the licks from Crossroads. <laughs> okay, so uh, paint me a picture of the emergency situation when that yeah. would be needed. Uh, well, I don't know if it'd be like the the licks from Crossroads, but there there are situations where the 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 music reaches a feverish. Intense. More live situation where, than studio, probably. I mean, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, but situations where where what speed, um, <clears throat> speed and clarity, uh, and intensity communicate something that can't be replaced or better articulated or yeah. you know or or, or, or mm-hmm. you know it's like it that is the that is the the tone Dig you know it. what i mean like a kind of charlie parker uh or or uh or ferris sanders mm. or something that that like just the scent wailing 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 is not as bad a word on other when you think of other instruments uh, as it is on guitar <laughs> <laughs> but um why you're it's so yeah. true but why uh because because i think the tone that I mean it has to do with breath, I, think t- I would think. Like breath and and the tones that are associated with or that are like really complementary or hide a lot, like supportive mm-hmm. to wailing guitar are these like overly compressed, thin, distorted um tones. They they hide any kind of uh lack of technique you know, or, or like a bum note or whatever you, the, the distance between the sound of a botched note or misfreded note or misplayed note. And one that's played clearly with like that kind of hyper compression, uh, is really small. Mm-hmm. It's really narrow comparative to like, like a clean uncompressed guitar tone, you know, where there's dynamic. It, so, so it's, it's just like a, it's it's a crutch, um, and people who spend a lot of time trying to play fast uh, or playing fast and succeeding, I think they they oftentimes do it with that tone, and that tone is just 
so so lifeless mm. now. And there are examples of it on sax. You know, there's sax playing and tone that you're just like, yeah, that's sax, and I'm not really here for it. Um, but then you hear Farrell on like Coltrane live in Seattle, and you're like, that sounds more <laughs> like a an abandoned child than a yes. saxophone. Mm. You know, and that's yeah. that's the thing that can be communicated by speed and volume and intensity that that mm. can't. That's when it's appropriate. Exactly. To to have to have the vocabulary that's used in that uh, you know in the crossroads <laughs> uh, uh, vernacular. Well, my hot take is, and I'm going to wrap up today's episode with this: is I feel Steve Vai won that duel. I felt that when I first saw it. I, uh, I the several times I've interviewed Steve, I've been meaning to tell him. I think he got ripped off in the duel, but. You know, that was my hot take when I was twelve. Well, because they over they overdubbed the second guitar on that last <laughs> yeah, eight right, chord. Right? So it's cheating. <laughs> but wait a minute. You know, Steve Vai is playing the thing that Ralph Macchio Yeah, yeah. We're talking yeah, metaphorical. He, right. so he, he beat himself. The moral of the story is like, yeah, you know, try as you might, you know, the the, the devil always wins. There you go. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap up today's episode. <laughs> <laughs> Words to live by. <laughs> Blake, thanks for going super deep on this on this episode about the new record and your production. And looking forward, we're going to come back later this week with one more episode with Blake, um, where we're going to talk about his uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of fingerstyle guitar and his approach to altered tunings. So tune in later this week uh, for Chasing Frets. For Joe Gore and Blake Mills, I'm Jason Shadrick, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>